This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a live edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this program is dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions. Whatever the Bible says, that's what I'm going to try to communicate to you. All you have to do is call me. 210-340-9585 is our main number. 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. And just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Hope you had a good day off yesterday. I was here, got a lot done. Nobody else was. That's why I was able to get so much done. Hope you had a great holiday. Hope you spent some time uh, going back, um, reading about the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, um... I was a junior in high school when he was assassinated. And um, I remember uh, the the feeling of how could things get worse? And then it was just a few months later when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. And for a junior in high school, it was a terrifying time. And you look back on the legacy of those men. And regardless of what your political views are, uh, these are men who are committed to the work that was the focal point of their lives. They were committed to to leveling the playing field. And without them, we would all have been a lot poorer. So hope you had a great holiday. And now we're back to the program. Uh, Because it's Tuesday and not Monday, we don't have any Bible studies to talk about. So I'm going to get right to some of the questions. The first one, uh, while we wait your phone calls, is from Emily. Uh, Pastor, on 1 Corinthians 5, I'm struggling with Paul handing a man over to Satan and putting him out of the church because he was sinning. That sounds so unloving. Wouldn't it be better to try to keep him in the church? Well, Emily, the one thing that we have to remember is it doesn't matter how it feels to us or how it reads to us. We know that these scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was the Apostle Paul writing, but it was the Spirit of God pushing his pen. And so one of the things I think we have to struggle with, rather than what the Scripture says, is we have to struggle with why we feel the way we do about it. How could it be unloving? This is the Apostle Paul that we're talking about. 
How could it be unloving to hand this man over to Satan? You remember why, if you read that passage, Emily, it's for the destruction of his flesh, so that on that day, the day of judgment, his soul might be saved. You see, Paul understood what love really was. And love was caring more about that man's eternal destination than about how he felt. Now, I'm going to address your question uh, from a couple different perspectives. The first, and this is why we're told to study to show ourselves approved. Work men, work women, Emily, rightly dividing the word of God. Um, if you'd read a little further, Second Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians was a book written about six months after First Corinthians, a letter written about six months after First Corinthians. We also know from First Corinthians that Paul wrote, I'm sorry, from Second Corinthians about First Corinthians, Paul wrote that letter with a great deal of anguish and through many tears, he said. Now, if you read First Corinthians, it doesn't sound like it. It just sounds like he's mad. But his heart, because his was the heart of God, his heart was broken, Emily. And so he did the best thing that could happen for this man. And we know in Second Corinthians chapter 2 that it worked. This man walked away from his sin. You take the cover of the church away from people. The sense that, well, we're okay. People in the church still love me. Um, you take that away. And you're taking away a level of protection. And then the man's got to wrestle with the devil himself. And that's exactly what Paul did. Now, here's the other perspective. We've got to stop worrying so much about how things feel emotionally. If we really love someone, we're not doing them any favor by patting them on the back and telling them, it's okay, God understands your sin. It wouldn't be loving at all to do that. And so Paul was simply saying, put this man out of the church so he's on his own. Let him get desperate. Let him really, really have to deal with, with the devil himself. And my hope is that he'll come running back to Jesus. Emily, that's exactly what happened. Whenever we pastors have to put somebody out of the church because they refuse to repent of their sin, there are always people who say, well, that's not very kind, that's not very loving. But it's the most loving thing we can do. So we need sort of a renewing of our mind according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We need to agree with God and know that His way is always the best way. And when I've had to do this on a couple of occasions over the years, now a couple doesn't sound like a lot, but these are really, really difficult things. And before we ever get to that point, we've talked to the person about their sin, we've told them repeatedly how much Jesus loves them and how much we love them. We've demanded that they repent and stop sinning. But they don't do it. And at some point, we've got to make a stand that this is not acceptable behavior. And as long as you claim to be a Christian, and these guys always do. I shouldn't say guys, these men and women always do. Then what we do is we hand them over. And then we cry and we pray. 
And you have no idea, Emily, just how much this kind of thing breaks our hearts. So I hope that makes sense to you, Emily, and I hope your struggling is over. Instead, struggle with your emotions and your flesh. One of the hard things for us when we do have to implement church discipline on somebody, one of the really hard things is to see people choose sides. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they put him or her out of the church. I thought, and I'll use this personally, Pastor Ron loved people. Well, I love them enough to tell them the truth and warn them of the consequences. And then they have to deal with the choice they make. So I hope that's enough. Jeremy says, Pastor Ron, would you talk about street preaching and whether or not there's any value in it? I'm watching Ray Comfort on YouTube. Jeremy, I know Ray Comfort. Um, I mean, we're not friends or anything, but I know him pretty well. He started out as a Calvary Chapel guy a lot of years ago uh, before his ministry um, sort of consumed his time. And I know his heart is absolutely solid gold. Now, uh, I don't necessarily agree with the way he does it. You know, I'm not a guy who'll go out and tell somebody, are you, have you ever told a lie? Yes, I've told a lie. Well, then you're a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Yes. Well, what does that make you? It makes me a thief. And then we talk to him about how they violate the law. People know when they sin. So he doesn't do it the way I would do it. But let me tell you something. His heart is pure gold. And He's out there on the streets doing it, Jeremy, um, when others are just talking about it. So I'm a Ray Comfort fan in that sense. Um, uh, He's doing what he believes he's gifted by God to do. And um, oft times he is setting an example for the rest of us. That's what we should be doing as well. Let me talk more generally about street preaching and less about Ray Comfort. One of the reasons that I think Ray Comfort is effective is because he talks with people. He doesn't yell at him. He's not standing on a bench shouting, uh, turn or burn. Uh, he, he's, he's talking to them conversationally. Ray happens to be quite an engaging guy. He's got a great sense of humor. And so people like him. Even the people that get mad at him when he's preaching to them. But he's not yelling at them. He's not in their face. He's not shouting, repent, or you're going to spend forever in hell. He's talking about the goodness of God. What we do here at Calvary Chapel, Jeremy, with our street witnessing teams, is we send them out to talk to people. Not to shout. Not to get in anybody's face. Not to point fingers or to judge. But simply to tell them about this Jesus that we love so much. So from that perspective, Jeremy, I'm all for street preaching. Um, I, I think there's great value in it. Um, uh, even if nobody gives their life to the Lord, um, seeds are planted. Jesus said that we're to, to scatter the word of God, the seed in the parable of the sower. We're to do it liberally, generously. We're to do it regardless of what type of soil it appears to be falling on. We've seen a lot of people who rejected the street preacher only later to come to faith in Christ. 
So as long as you're talking to people, as long as you're rightly representing Jesus, Jesus wouldn't raise his voice at people. Jesus wouldn't call his name. Jesus wouldn't judge them. Jesus, in fact, said, I didn't come to judge the world, but that through me the world might be saved. And no doubt the world that Jesus was born in needed to be judged. But it wasn't the time. Neither is it the time for us. Now, any honest discussion... Jeremy, of what God has done for us requires us to be honest about the consequences of rejecting the truth. And so not to tell somebody that hell is their destiny apart from Christ is not being truthful, it's certainly not being loving. But we don't lead with that. Romans says it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And I think sometimes, Jeremy, when we create a relationship with somebody through a little bit of conversation, share a little bit about who we are and what God's done in our life, and then we ask them the questions about how they respond to Jesus, um, I think we've earned the right to be able to talk to people. Let me say one other thing. Um, I've seen street preachers follow people. Our method here is when people stop listening, we stop talking. There's always somebody else. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. There's always somebody else. When we send a team out, and we actually have teams uh, on weekends down at the uh, Alamo area in the downtown area of San Antonio, uh, there's always tourists, there's always um, homeless people, there's always um, people from San Antonio. I mean, it's a crowded place. Um, we just want to be sure everybody hears. So that, Jeremy, is our position on street preaching. And yes, I think there is great value in it. By the way, the people that we send out uh, on our street witnessing team, I think the best thing, now I'm the pastor, so I kind of sit back and take a take a, a, an overview of, of all of the ministries. The best thing about us sending people out to witness on the streets is how quickly it changes them. I mean, I watch people grow in their faith and mature. I see people that, that God's able to use and they get so excited they want to be used by God every day. And so I see just unbelievable fruit, not in the number of converts. That's not up to us anyway. That's between the Holy Spirit and the person that we're talking to. But the fruit I see is more faithful, stronger, more eager Christians to do what God tells us what to do. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls. Or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Raul. Uh, Pastor, on 1 Timothy 4.10 says, Jesus is the Savior of all men. Why doesn't that mean all men will be saved? Well, Raul, you left out part of that. He is the Savior of all men. But then it says, especially those who are being saved. So what that means is that Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, is efficacious 
for all men. There's no other way to be saved. It's just Jesus. And anyone and everyone who believes and receives Jesus Christ is going to be saved. So First Timothy is right. Jesus is the Savior of all men. But then he qualifies it, especially those who are being saved. That refers to the efficiency of the call. So his life, death, and resurrection is efficacious for all, for God so loved the world. But the reality that God deals with in his word is that most people are going to reject him. So what he's saying there is that Jesus is the only way to heaven and those who have said yes to Jesus, well, they get it. They understand. The others don't. So it doesn't mean that all men will be saved. God doesn't force anybody to choose him. It's God's will that everyone gets saved. Peter says that none should perish. But God doesn't force them against our will. God could never force anybody against his or her will. So all men won't be saved because not all will believe. And even some who believe intellectually, they won't be saved because they don't want to stop sinning. You know, Raul, I say all the time, whether it's uh, from the pulpit here or on this radio program, I say all the time, that there's only one reason that people don't get saved. It's not that they can't believe. It's that they won't. And the reason they won't is because they don't want to stop sinning. That is the only reason that people reject Jesus Christ. You come to Jesus, you can come as you are, but you come to him on his terms. And he says, we have to be holy. While our flesh says, no, I don't want to be holy. He says, you've got to repent of your sin. I don't want to. I want to keep sinning. And when we keep sinning, we've rejected the only Savior. Here is an anonymous question. I have sinned sexually. Does that mean God won't use me? How can I get back on track? Um, anonymous, uh, I just dealt with it in Raul's question. Um, you get back on track by repenting. Now, repenting doesn't mean I'm sorry. Repenting doesn't mean that I cried and I feel really terrible about myself. Repenting means stop it. And the moment you stop it, First John 1, 9 is yours to possess if we confess our sins, and that means to agree with God about sin, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all, unreach- all unrighteousness. So Anonymous, all you have to do is say, God, I did it. I'm so sorry. I don't want to do it again. Please help me. And your position in Christ is once again Perfection. God won't use you unless you repent, but when you do, he's eager to use you. So I don't know what God was using you to do, and I don't know uh, what position you had uh, that you fell from, but God will always open his arms to receive a genuinely repentant man or woman back. 
I think sometimes anonymous we try to remember or try to, to, to believe that if we repent and God's going to bring us right back to the place that we were before we sinned. I know this is true with some pastors, many pastors, in fact, that I've known over the years. And I've seen pastors disqualify themselves from pastoral ministry, even from teaching ministry. And they walked away from God because, well, if I can't come back and do what I'm supposed to be doing, then I, I don't want to come back at all. And it demonstrates where their heart always was. So if you sin sexually and you declare that you have, let God know how sorry you are and that you're sorry enough to stop and never do it again. Maybe you could be like Paul. I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, I hate my sin. I do what I'm not supposed to do. And what I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do that. Well, just tell God you're sorry and get right back in the presence of the Lord and start all over again. 340-9585. Here is a question uh, anonymously from uh, the audience today. Oh, I'm sorry. We got we got Ruben online. Well, Ruben, I read right over you. You're online one. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you. Thank you for uh, taking my call, Pastor Ryan. Uh, I just have a, just hopefully a, a couple things you could uh, clear up for me before you go to break. Uh, I was reading uh, through Job again. As I'm reading the Bible all over from beginning to end, I got to the book of Job again, and and I noticed uh, that when Satan came to to God, it says that it says that uh, angels. If I re- I can't remember verbatim, but did it say that there were angels that were with him came to God, or it was just the angels of God? Because translated, I guess in the Greek. That means sons of God, mm-hmm. if I read correctly. And then yeah. were they you did, with you did, him? Ruben. What, what it means is evidently there's a time when God gathers his angels. Now, clearly, since Satan was there, it, it means even the fallen angels. You know, they're all servants of God. So it's sort of like calling a meeting at work, you know, and God gathers them all together. And um, what happened there is is God simply told Satan, um, I know what you've been doing. You've been checking out my servant Job, haven't you? See, Satan had been sort of trying to find an opening to destroy Job. And God says, no, I have no one like him. He's the most righteous man of all. And uh, and uh, that's when Satan said, yeah, that's because you've got him surrounded, but you take away his protection. And, and that's when they yeah. sort of negotiated. God said, you can't take his life, uh, but you can you can have an opening to attack. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. All right, so I understand that, that he was... So those, the, the other angels of God, they weren't necessarily his demons. They were just God's angels, right? God, well, yeah, it, it, there, there's no way to exclude that fallen angels were there, too. Okay, so okay, okay. We know Satan was there. We you also know, know that, that God's good angels were there. But Amen. but when you see the term sons of God, it always refers to angelic beings, uh, good good or fallen, good or okay. bad, okay. and and that's the case here. Okay. Now the second thing I want to know 
is it true, I guess this is a two-part question, is it true that Satan does not know our thoughts, he cannot read our minds, and he does not have, he cannot read our minds and he doesn't know what we're thinking, so that's why I think there's a scripture that says, watch your mind and watch your hearts. I believe mm-hmm. Proverbs says something about watching your hearts. And then the second part to that question, does he have a right to afflict sickness on us, like yeah. cancer, uh, um, you know, all these illnesses? Does he have the, the right to do things to us in general, like just cause us, like, I know that he can, can he torment us, like these movies that come out, you know, yeah. uh, like, you know, can he torment us like that? Those are the only two yeah. questions I have, and I'll stay on okay. and, and I'm probably going to finish answering that second question on the other side of the break, because we're now inside one minute. Uh, I can say this. He, he cannot read our minds, but we also know from Scripture he has the ability to plant thoughts in our minds. We know that because he did it with David on a couple of occasions, but, but he can plant thoughts in our minds. Um, but, but remember one thing about the devil. He is the greatest psychologist in the history of the world. Uh, he knows stuff. He knows our patterns. He studies us. And so he knows the avenue of attack. And I'll finish this on the other side of the break, Ruben. Good to hear from you. Thank you for calling. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron. About less urges to... Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls. I'm answering a second part of Ruben's question about whether or not the devil can physically afflict us. Two things... We need never to forget how powerful, supernaturally powerful, the enemy is. Um, he can, and I've, I've experienced this myself personally on more than one occasion, Reuben. Uh, he can plant thoughts in our minds. I think he can manipulate it in the sense that uh, he can recreate pain. Um, I suffer occasionally from migraines. I have some food allergies, and uh, there are some things that really, really set me off. And I remember uh, the first time that I was aware of this, I was going uh, to serve uh, that particular night. I I can't remember whether it was at a church or going to an event or something, but I was going to share the gospel with people, and, and I knew I needed to do it. And I got the worst migraine, and I hadn't eaten anything that would have caused it. I'd been really, really careful. And I remember I was so sick, I, I, I took a walk and I just said, Lord, you know I, I'm going to do this tonight. No matter what, I'm going to do this, so I need your strength. Please prop me up so that I can do this, Jesus. And and uh, as soon as I said that, that migraine went away instantly. Now, 
if you've suffered with migraines, you know that they don't go away like that. Uh, those kind of headaches would take me days to get over. In this particular case, uh, I became convinced that it was Satan sort of recreating the sense of pain in my mind. And, I mean, it felt real. It was terrible. But it went away instantly. And no migraine has ever done that. So he can afflict us that way. But physically, Reuben, he can afflict us. If I hear one more Christian say, I bind you the spirit of cancer and I bind you the spirit of the flu or whatever it is, I'm going to go nuts. Because frankly, um, the devil cannot afflict us physically except except with the permission of God. And we know that because we have two examples of it in Scripture. One is, is of course, Job. The other one is the Apostle Paul. But both, in both cases, the enemy had to go through God. A messenger of Satan was permitted to torment him, he said. And uh, I don't think most of us were in that conversation between God and the devil. So, um... If we can be afflicted physically, it's only with the permission of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. I'm going to read it. Always keep this. It says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe. That's Jesus. And the evil one cannot harm them. The evil one cannot harm them. So, he has access to our mind, Reuben, but he doesn't have access to afflict us physically without the express permission of God. Good question. Here is... We've got Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, I'm Matthew 7. Hi, how are you doing, sir? I'm sorry. Uh, Matthew 7, chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. It says, um, beware of false prophets and uh, of, uh, them dressed in uh, uh, wolves and sheep's clothing. Um, who are these people? I mean, do you know in the world, are these these people that I talk on TV and they're like asking for money, <laughs> I, I, you know, and all that? Jim, <laughs> <And laughs> uh, you opened the door. I don't want to really run through. But uh, yeah, you know, look at the, the context of the passage. Jesus is talking about the, 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 the narrow gate and, and the, the wide gate and how many find the wide gate and the road well-traveled and few find the gate that leads to life or the road that leads to life. And then he warns them. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And then he says this, by your fruit you will recognize them. So here's what he's telling us. Now in Jesus' day... Um, he would have been talking specifically about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes. He would have been talking uh, to them. Um, I mean, they looked like they were God's representative. They had the beards and they had the robes and they had the phylacteries and they, they, they claimed to be experts in the law. And Jesus said, those people are going to destroy you. They're going to lead you uh, in places you don't want to go. So watch out for false prophets. Before I go on, Jimmy, I think it's interesting that 
uh, often when Jesus is asked about the, the end times, what are the signs, he will often lead with, watch out that you're not deceived. There are false prophets out there. So um, that's what he's talking about the time that he was alive. Now, the application that, that you applied here, uh, I think, is, is the way we would understand the value of this verse or these verses in, in our day. Uh, we can go to somebody who's got a church uh, that has uh, 20,000 people in it and they've got uh, expensive clothing and they're saying God and uh, teaching false doctrine, but they do it so um, um, cleverly that that most of the time the people can't discern. Uh, they're they are false prophets. Jesus says to watch out for them. They are ferocious, ferocious wolves. Uh, they come in sheep's clothing. Well, many of our false prophets wear $3,000 suits or wear, wear robes um, uh, as they stand up pulpit, but, but they're teaching false doctrine. And, and Jesus said, they may look like they belong to me, but they don't belong to me at all. And we have, have so jets. many of those. Go ahead. They have like three jets and all that, five different places. Now I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, just, you know, I'm just, I know. Uh, I, usually I can tell, you know, that who, who's, who's real, because I believe the Holy Spirit lets me know um, who's real. But that's because... That's because I seek Jesus first for the answers. You know, Jimmy, what the most important element in being able to spot a false teacher is? It's being in the Word. When when you're in the Word, um, the Holy Spirit's going to send off all kinds of false alarm bells uh, when when the wolves start speaking. And and, uh, frankly, the sheep that get devoured uh, by these ferocious wolves... Uh, they're the ones that don't protect themselves and they go listen to something that sounds good and, and fills them with hope, though it's false hope. Um, and they can avoid it simply by being in the Word of God. And uh, honestly, we just don't care enough about what's true um, to really dig in so we know it to enable us to recognize uh, the counterfeit gospel. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question that was sent in by Anonymous. What are the dangers of hyper-dispensationalism? Now, Anonymous, you may have listened to the program enough to know that I am a dispensationalist. It is the only way that we can make sense of the Bible. It's the only way that we can actually read the Bible uh, in context and, and discover who Jesus or who the Holy Spirit is talking to, or the human author, who the ho- human author is talking to, and what his intent is. Uh, you got to understand that, that, that the, the law was a dispensation that, according to Jesus, is a completely different dispensation than the time that we live, this dispensation of grace. So there, the dispensations uh, are, are not only an effective tool for interpretation, but I think the only way that we can make sense of the Bible and keep from taking the word out of context. Uh, the problem with hyper-dispensationalists, and I'll say this even more generally, any extreme position is dangerous, is out of balance. And hyper-dispensationalists, and 
Um, you may have been listening, and we get some calls from hybrid dispensationalists that want to challenge me, and they use false names, and they get through the screener process um, by, by, by lying and, and uh, saying they're going to talk about one thing, but then they talk about something else. Um, the hyper dispensationalists will have a different dispensation uh, every two chapters throughout the book of Acts. Uh, every extreme, Anonymous, is out of balance. Every extreme uh, leads to error, and um, we need to avoid the extreme. So hyper-dispensationalism sends you out of balance, you lose the context, and you uh, then lose the message of the context. So um, stay away from it. Um, again, I'm speaking to you as a dispensationalist. If you want to, to, to read healthy dispensationalists, read um, C.I. Schofield. Um, um, there are others, but he is probably the man who popularized it the most. Um, he's got a, the, the, the C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Study Bible is a great, great study Bible. It's a chain Bible, chain reference Bible. Um, but um, um, balance, balance, balance is always the key. Um, so hope that helps, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Randy. He says, what is the difference between deism and Christianity? Randy, that question's um, um, significant because we always talk about, you know, the United States was a Christian nation formed on Christian principles. Uh, and really, that's not true. Um, there certainly were Christians among our founding fathers. But there were far more deists, and certainly the more well-known ones were deists. A deist believes there is a God. But they also then believe that God's not involved in the day-to-day, minute-by-minute affairs of the world. So it's basically God created everything, and we know he's out there, but because he can't be known, um, we've got to figure things out on our own. And that's what deism really is. Uh, Christianity, of course, um, simply says, no, God is a name. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is intimately involved in the day-to-day, hour-by-hour issues of life. He wants us to be involved in everything. Deism is a way, Randy, where you can say, well, I believe in God. I'm a good person. But, but a way that allows you to do what you want to do without consulting God. Oh, he's got other things on his mind. He took a step back. Um, that's not our Jesus. In fact, our Jesus didn't take a step back. He came forward. He told his disciples, it's good for you that I go away because if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. And basically what he's saying is there'll be another me in you, the promised Holy Spirit. So, um, deism is simply God is hands off. He's out there, but we can't know him. But I believe in him. Christianity is, there is a God who's very personal, very involved in our lives. And his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Good question. Uh, Josie said, uh, I believe in the Trinity, but how can Jesus be God if he said he didn't know the hour of his return? 
Well, Josie, there's an easy explanation for that. Jesus said that when he was on earth. And remember, Philippians chapter 2 says he veiled his deity. He humbled himself to become just like us. And Josie, every minute of his life on earth for 33 plus years, every minute was spent, submitted to the will of his Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember the Spirit in the form of a dove descended on him at his baptism by John. And so he was given the Spirit without measure, and he depended on the Holy Spirit for everyday direction and guidance, just like you and I are to depend on the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, yes, not even the Son of Man knows the hour of his return. Only my Father in heaven. Believe me, Jesus knows now, Josie, because he's no longer veiling his deity. He's at the right hand of majesty and glory and splendor. So he didn't know then because he said, I only know what my Father tells me. So very important. He wasn't diminishing who he was. He was simply saying that in this hour, in human flesh, I have a job to do, and that job doesn't involve knowing the details of the future. I love, uh, Josie, just thinking about the fact that Jesus got up every day, like you and I get up, uh, and had to depend completely on God. Now, we know he did a lot better job with it than we do. But Jesus didn't get up one day and say, you know what, I think I'll take the day off. He didn't get up another day and say, you know what, today I'm going to go heal people. He, he Everything he did came directly from the throne of God and was empowered by the Spirit of God. Jesus was a man just like we are humans. And there were things that he didn't know. That's why God on the Mount of Transfiguration had to send Moses and Elijah to him to tell him all of the things, the very specific things that were going to happen to him in Jerusalem in what we call this Passion Week. Jesus didn't know. I mean, he had the big picture, obviously. He knew the scriptures. He knew he would be crucified, but but there was details that certainly he knows everything about now, but he didn't know then. So it was just what it means to be made human. He left heaven. He left the worship of angels. Entered the womb of a teenage girl. And lived in abject poverty until he got the call. So, good question. 340-9585, Ryan asks this question. How can we be made in the image of God if God is invisible? Um, Ryan, being made in the image of God doesn't mean that we look like him. Uh, Jesus, we know, was very ordinary in appearance. There was nothing about him that would attract us to him physically. There's nothing that would have pointed him out as, oh, I know you're special. You're the one. He was just an ordinary guy. So this has nothing to do with how we look or how Jesus looked. To be made in the image of God, and we get really goofy with this whole idea. Um, To be made in the image of God means two things. And that's the context of, of the creation. One, we were made with the capacity to choose. God chose us, so we have to choose him. So we were given a free will 
to decide the choices we were going to make. Obviously, if we make the right decisions, if we make the decision God wants us to make, we're going to be great. But if we make decisions God doesn't want us to make, well, then we're going to pay for eternity. The second thing being made in the image of God means is that since God is eternal, it means that when we are born, we are also eternal. We're going to live somewhere forever, even when these bodies give out. Think about an infant who's aborted. Uh, um, that baby was conceived eternal. And when the baby is killed through abortion, the baby's spirit inherits heaven and a new glorified physical resurrected body and will be in heaven forever. So we're going to live somewhere forever. This life determines where that's going to be. We have to choose in this life where we're going to spend eternity. It's inconceivable, Ryan, that God would 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 tell someone, I don't want anything to do with you. I, I, I don't want to believe in you. I don't want to obey you. Um, when that person dies, because he or she is made eternal, they got to live somewhere. It's inconceivable that God would force him to live with him. You wanted nothing to do with me in this life, so now you will have nothing to do with me in eternity. So that's all it means. Those things, Ryan, nothing more. It says nothing about physicality. Um, you know, I, I, I hear this term now used by... Uh, a lot of people with really bad doctrine um, were image bearers. Uh, they have no idea when they say that, what that means. Let's go to Ray on line one from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. When you said that uh, your explanation on uh, the being... being uh, <laughs> made in the image of God, you know, and uh, because it was referring to one aspect of having free will to choose good or evil, light or dark, I, I assumed, and I don't know why this struck me as kind of, what? <laughs> that uh, the angels, including Lucifer and his clan, were also made in the image of God. If you could just uh, expound on that just very slightly in your last I can. little bit. Thank you. I can. Thank you. Um, yeah, angels, their their choices are different than ours, but clearly they too were created uh, with the ability to choose. And not not just the ability to choose, but the need to choose. Now, the difference between angels and men, Ray, is that that we can choose every day. In fact, we, we, we have to choose every day. When we choose um, the choices we make, uh, we live with the consequences of those choices. Angels, now if we make the wrong one, we can repent, and God will say, okay, let's start over again. Angels, and I think this goes along with Jesus' concept of too much is given, much more is required. Um Angels, because they were in the presence of God. They were tempted by Satan, Lucifer, when he fell. 
They had a one-time only choice. When they made it, they were stuck with that choice forever and ever. So unlike humans, angels don't get to repent. Angels don't get to be born again. Angels don't get a second chance. And the only thing that we can understand is that because they'd been in the presence of God, they'd seen more, they were more accountable for the choice they made. Uh, They don't get a second chance. Ray, for you and for me, people here on this earth, we can get a new chance every day if that's what we need. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we can sin. Paul says, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning? God forbid. Um, But if your heart really is repentant, as long as you're genuine and sincere and you keep going back to God and asking for forgiveness, then he's going to forgive you. Why? Because you're one of his. Again, that's not a license to keep sinning because the man or the woman who keeps sinning, well, that man or woman knows nothing of God. Even if they know about him, they don't know him. So it's very important. Good question, Ray. Thank you very much. Let's make this the last question of the day. Um, I guess this is an appropriate one. This is from Wyatt. Uh, He says, how can I know if someone's repentance is real if they lied to me in the past? Um, Wyatt, you can't. Now, you can have a good idea based on on, uh, their level of of sincerity, their level of of genuineness. Um, But here's the thing you got to understand. God will not be mocked. He knows those who are his. So all you have to do is trust him. And sometimes when somebody who has lied to you or betrayed you in the past, they come up and I'm really sorry, it's hard to trust them. Now, God doesn't say that you have to trust them. He says you need to forgive them. And what he's saying is if you forgive them because I forgave you, then I'll take care of you. You don't have to worry about this person coming back and hurting you again. In other words, God's going to make sure you're on guard. So when somebody comes back and they repent and they seem genuine, it means we still keep an eye on them. It doesn't mean we judge them. It doesn't mean we just wait for the other shoe to drop. But what it really does mean, Wyatt, is that we've got to open our heart to them. And if they're not being real, God will reveal that. Now that really bothers a lot of people because, well, I could be taken advantage of again. I've already been hurt. Well, Jesus... How many times did he know you were going to take advantage of him again? How many times have you broken his heart? I mean, that's the case for all of us. And Jesus is simply saying, you can trust me, I got you. I got you. Our job is to forgive. And Wyatt, here's my own personal experience. To know that I'm not withholding forgiveness from anyone is true freedom. So forgive as you have been forgiven by God. Hey, thanks for the calls. Thanks for the questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Lord willing, see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.